the topic this morning is no deal. Uh, with just a few months left of the Article 50 period, both prime ministerial candidates saying no deal is better than a bad deal and the EU refusing to reopen the withdrawal agreement, you would be forgiven for feeling like we have kind of been here before. Um, but the good news is the weather is much nicer than January and you can watch Wimbledon instead of BBC Parliament if you get bored. Um, but on a more serious note, I think everyone, based on the kind of timelines that we've got left, the hardening of positions that have happened over the last weeks and months, and Parliament's so far failed attempts to try and formally stop No Deal, that the prospect of No Deal is rising, which is why I'm delighted to introduce such a great panel here this morning to discuss it. On the far left, we have Lauren Bartel, Reader in International Law at the Faculty of Law in Cambridge, Senior Counsel at Linklaters, and has literally written the book on the WTO. We then have, next to Lauren, Karen Wheeler, who was until last week Director General of the UK Government, responsible for the Border Delivery Group, which is the body overseeing the preparations for the UK borders for Brexit. Karen was the head of the UK government's operational delivery profession, and I think it's fair to say some done some of the biggest and scariest delivery jobs in government. And then finally, Ali Renison, Institute of Directors, head of EU and trade policy. Also think it's fair to say there's not really a trade or Brexit issue that Ali doesn't know about. So with the three of them, we have a lot of breadth. It is much more focused on the kind of trade angle, we will be looking to get into the other no deal implications around security um, at a later date, but I think there is plenty for us to get stuck into today. The event is on the record, you can follow along at the hashtag IFGBrexit, and after about half an hour there will be an opportunity for you guys to chuck in questions from the floor. Um, I will now shut up and we can get on to questions. So to start I was going to ask Lauren to start with the law, what does no deal Brexit actually mean in international law and trade law? What are the consequences of coming out of the EU without a transition period and with no settled future relationship? Well, let me answer that in a slightly perverse way, which is that it makes the UK a normal country from the position of international law. The WTO, and before it, the GATT, was set up to promote trade on a multilateral basis and from that point of view preferential trade in the form of customs unions or free trade agreements are exceptions in fact they are formally speaking uh, permitted as exceptions to um, the most favored nation obligation and the rules that govern multilateral trade now what that means for the UK and the EU is it means obviously that there is the termination of a preferential arrangement which covers everything oh, uh, covers rules on uh, customs duties, which are just taxes at the border, covers rules on regulations, uh, all forms of cooperation, common legal system, and so on. So you're breaking that apart, but again, to finish with a perverse point, uh, reverting to normality. Of course, normality, um, well, it's a bit like being out there dating rather than being in a relationship. Um, some people prefer it, <laughs> not everybody. <laughs> so UK is back on the market, is what you're saying? Essentially, um, yes. <laughs> um, Karen, there are lots of questions we can get into about UK government readiness and how it prepares for this sort of thing, but to start I thought it would be quite helpful to get your sense of what does readiness actually mean in this sense? Because it's 
Um, tempting to think that when you hear people say we think we're ready for no deal, that that means most people won't really notice a change. I mean, what does readiness mean? Um, yes, well, I'll, I'll just speak for the border because yeah. that's, that's where uh, I was working. Uh, what it doesn't mean is everything will be fine. Um, I, you have to think of readiness in a number of contexts. So there's what government has to do. There is what uh, the industry and the operators who run the border have to do. And there's what traders and people using the border have to do. Um, so when government uh, says it's as ready as it can be, it is mostly saying we've done everything that we can, that we need to uh, uh, develop the processes, communicate the processes, develop the systems, communicate the systems, put the arrangements in place so that the users and operators of the border can work. Um, but what we can't do is ensure that every other aspect uh, will work and every other aspect of industry will work and will be prepared. What that means is uh, there are consequences, of course, if uh, traders and businesses are not ready um, uh, because there will be problems for, uh, for them uh, uh, at the border if they are not ready, uh, um, mainly because they will be moving goods between uh, the EU and the UK um, and they need to be able to potentially go through two sets of different arrangements, the UK arrangements and the EU arrangements. Um, we've, I think, in the UK done our best to ensure that the UK arrangements will work and will enable the flow of trade. But, uh, and the EU are likewise doing the same, but they have much more uh, clear and rigorous requirements that have to be met. Um, and if people are not ready, they will not be able to easily move across the border. And then part of our readiness arrangements is trying to ensure that we can cope with the consequences of our traders not being ready and therefore there being some disruption at the border. So some of it's kind of how do you stop the mess from happening yeah. and then also having capacity to clean up the mess exactly. when inevitably it happened. Okay, Ali, how are your members thinking about No <coughs> Deal? Do they have a clear picture of what the 1st of November would look like and what kind of things are you telling them to expect? So I mentioned to Joe before, I'm not going to spend my whole time reading out, but the reason I'm looking at this is um, it's really interesting to go through the surveys that we do on planning and preparation and then look at the verbatim comments, some of which are, you know, personal views on Brexit, you know, that you're always going to get that to a certain extent. But I thought there was one comment in particular which showed why there are issues with companies being completely ready. And there's a comment that says, well, it depends. How long are WTO rules, WTO rules likely to apply for in the event of a no deal? And that is the, that's sort of the, the problem in a nutshell, is you don't actually, you have, I suppose, if you're out of the U, the certainty in a political sense that you are out, 
you have no idea what that's actually going to mean and how long it's going to last for. We know that um, a lot of the mitigation procedures that HMRC and other parts of government have brought in are temporary. We think that's around or up to 12 months. But if you don't, if you're trying to actually plan for that next stage and if you are trying to look for some kind of certainty, and I think it's interesting, you know, we see the sort of the, the support, even though it's still at a minority level, um, for what some people might call the extremes rising, even amongst businesses, for another referendum. There's about, that's currently still, still a first choice above the withdrawal agreement um, at about 48% to about uh, uh, 29, 30%. Um, and then no deal supports probably at about uh, 24, 25%. Um, and the reason for that, I think, is that you start to see people who are wanting anything that looks like certainty. But of course, once you scratch that level, uh, that layer a little bit further and realize what it means, it means that the uncertainty doesn't end. The certainty about whether you're in the EU or not does not end. Um, but it doesn't mean that you have any certainty about what to plan for next. And so what you're seeing a lot of is basically you go through and you ask the companies, um, you know, we know that about two thirds of them have said that no deal would have a pretty bad impact on their operations. Um, and only about half of them have done any planning. And there's a chunk of about a third that basically say we just cannot prepare in advance um, there's too many unanswered questions left from government from the EU we will only be able to react afterwards uh, which in a way it sounds sort of lazy I think from some people's perspective it's really difficult if you have unanswered questions particularly ones that deal with regulatory issues but also issues around customer confidence how can you measure how badly that's going to be affected what can you do apart from setting aside capital reserves to deal with that so that's where you see it really taking a hit so to speak is in this sort of the, the, the pause button on the investment Mm. So before we talk too much about the kind of October deadline that is coming up, I thought it would be helpful to look back at March. We've been here before. The UK has twice had a peak over the so-called cliff edge and decided to pull back. Um, Karen, just how ready did you think the UK government was as a whole for a no deal at the end of March? And what did it feel like inside government in the run-up? I think all of us who were watching Parliament saw this kind of febrile atmosphere of MPs looking like they definitely needed a bit of a holiday. <laughs> it's certainly true, must have been for the civil servants who had been run, you know, running up to this point for a couple of years. So yeah, how, how ready was the UK and what did it feel like in those weeks and months leading up? Uh, yeah, so uh, it, it felt like we were preparing for a crisis uh, where we didn't fully, couldn't fully understand um, how it would play out. But we all, I think, felt, uh, every part of government felt it had its plans in place. It knew what it needed to do. It knew what the critical areas are where there were the biggest risks. And it had those uh, plans in place. Um, Post-Christmas, this got into a very regular drumbeat of, uh, of meetings and processes whereby all of government uh, were, were united in following through on the issues. Uh, so exactly as you would expect, uh, a, a systematic and consistent process. In one sense, it, it, what became quite helpful was uh, in terms of enabling people to focus on the job was, all right, okay, it looks like a deal isn't going to happen and no deal becomes one of the main planning scenarios that we need, we need to work through. So while people were still trying to work for a deal, there were most of us planning for uh, what no deal looked like. 
Um, were, were we ready? Well, you know, previous, previous answer uh, I, I should refer to. I think we felt that we had done everything that we, we could to mitigate um, uh, as far as we could. But what, there were some areas of uh, no deal where really the consequences did feel particularly difficult. Of course, goods and trade at the Channel mm. uh, and Northern Ireland was, was one of the other areas uh, where, where, where frankly you can't mitigate those risks away and all you can do is um, cope with the consequences. We might pick up Northern Ireland anyways, but the one thing I would say, because I think there is a tendency to always focus on, for, for obvious existential reasons, goods, but the most common refrain from, from at least the members of ours who trade in services um, generally or trade internationally was what's going to happen to arrangements for EU nationals arriving after the exit day. So we know that we have settled status in place. We think that's going to, we think from what we understand from the Home Office and the Home Secretary that that is going to continue to be ported over, um, although there's some resingling questions about the reciprocity on that. But there were actually a lot of questions about how do I bring in, what is the regime for bringing in people for EU nationals? Because at the moment you can actually, you know, you're, you're required, mandated by law not to discriminate in how you um, uh, recruit people. You have to treat you UK and EU citizens the same and employers want to be compliant. So a lot of the questions are now around from the services sector, what happens to movement of people after exit day? And I don't think there was a statement a couple of months ago, because I think there have been some um, uh, questions generated by a certain immigration minister's appearance in front of, uh, I think it was the Home Affairs Committee, um, and the Home Office then had to clarify, but we still don't have any really fulsome clarity on how that um, uh, I think it's a three-year regime sort of where visas, new visa regimes would then be brought in is actually going to work. And that's what a lot of people in the services sector are wondering. <coughs> and are there other, Ali, for your members, because it seemed like business preparedness was one of the things in the run-up to March that was pretty grim when you looked at the EORI statistics mm. that HMRC published. Was that because, you know, you mentioned earlier just this huge uncertainty of not knowing if or when they needed to prepare, or were there big unanswered questions, like this services one from government that businesses were waiting to hear? I think when it comes to goods and particularly looking at customs, even though customs is only a fraction of what you need to deal with when you're moving goods, um, there were a lot of little unanswered questions that added up effectively. So I sat in loads of meetings with sort of customs officials where um, it sounds niche, but there was a constant refrain about, and this sometimes happened for the people who were actually doing the customs work for companies, so the people that a lot of companies would be turning to to do the work for them as intermediaries, well, what happens to uh, supplementary declarations? We can get into that technical detail later if we want to, and there wasn't an answer forthcoming there for quite some time. In fact, I think it's only recently just been answered. Though I think there was a, a sort of constellation of small queries that added up quite a bit. Um, and I think for some businesses, yes, it was a case of not so much head in the sand, but there is so much that I need to know that I'm not getting from generic government advice. I think there was a mailbox set up from HMRC, but we would have preferred to see a helpline so people could have those active queries answered. Because, you know, the last thing I'll say on that as an example is some of the questions that we get in from members, you really need to be a lawyer to go through some of them. I mean, I spent two weeks on, um, we had one member sent me an incredibly complicated product flowchart with goods, you know, the direction of travel to and from the EU, outside of the EU and back to the UK. And he said, basically, I want to know, does this flowchart work under no deal according to this regulation if we become a third country? And, you know, EU regulations are not always 
uh, written in the easiest to understand language, so you then have to go and make sure your interpretation is correct, and really what they're looking for is a legal opinion. Um, so very often, and that's one of the reasons, the last thing I'd say on the preparation part, is that we pushed really hard, we still haven't gotten much from government on um, them to replicate what the Irish government has done, what the Dutch government has done, which is basically to help with the financial assistance to, that you need for professional help. Because I think the government's approach tends to be at a political level, well, we have all this advice, which through no fault of their own is just too generic for most companies to use. A lot of the questions are very situational specific and take a professional or legal mind to really deal with. So we were hoping for some kind of offsetting a, a voucher scheme, but you know, and that would be relevant even throughout any transition or implementation period we have because we have that chunk of companies who say they are only going to be able to adjust once they know what the changes in practice are. So Lauren, this is good business for trade lawyers. <laughs> um, yeah. A lot of the assumptions around what happened will know with no deal are kind of based on the EU applying the letter of the law, as Karen said, the kind of more stringent requirements that they have, except in the areas where they've already said there'll be some kind of unilateral measure put in place. If, and you know, we have a new president of the commission, they come in in the 1st of November and say, guys, this has all escalated way too quickly. The UK is just left with a deal. We need to row back. And are there some levers that they could pull to soften the blow of no deal for the UK? How much could the EU make it easy for the UK if they wanted to? Well, the main constraint is, um, is international, is above the EU, because of course the EU can do pretty much what it likes under EU law within the limits of its treaties, but that's not a problem. Uh, and uh, it's really the most favoured nation obligation, which is the, you know, the heart of the, the WTO that, that constrains the EU. That applies most obviously to <coughs> rules on, um, for instance, um, customs duties, right? So coming out of the EU means that the EU uh, has to apply the same customs duties to the UK as to all other countries. I mean, that is a given. Uh, of course, it can drop these unilaterally, but for all countries, in the same way as the UK has said that it's going to drop these unilaterally for all countries. That is fine. But this is not the sum total of what the WTO says. Um, not every WTO rule is subject to MFN, in particular, checks. And I think this point I really want to emphasise, because everybody assumes that controls at the border need to be applied on a most favoured nation basis. It's actually not true. It's not true at all. Controls are there in order to give comfort to importing countries that the goods coming in, just limiting this to goods, some persons, but goods, are safe. And that needs to be done on a risk assessment basis, which can vary according to the risks. So, for instance, if products are coming from the UK and they're made in the same way and everything has, is the same, um, it would be up to the EU to explain why it now thinks that these goods aren't safe anymore. MFN doesn't come into it. It comes into it, of course, if another country can then say, well, we are equally as safe as the UK, we want the same treatment as the UK. That is fine. But the idea that the UK gets treated the same way as Zimbabwe from, uh, from day one, or Australia, or whatever, with which there aren't sufficient cooperation agreements and different risk profiles, I think is just wrong as a matter of law. Now, whether the EU will pay any attention to that is another question. Of course, enforcing your rights under WTO law uh, takes a while, but it is geared for this sort of 
problem. It's good for major regulatory violations. And if the EU is violating WTO law in a systematic way, I think um, dispute settlement, or at least a threat of dispute settlement, is an option. A good example of where the EU could do more and doesn't do more uh, is what's happened this week with the Swiss stock exchanges. So the EU has withdrawn equivalents from Swiss stock exchange. So as of Monday this week, uh, Swiss shares can only be traded in Switzerland, not in EU stock exchanges, and the Swiss have done the same, vice versa. Now, it's pulled this. It said, well, that's a, we were treating you as equivalent um, to, to uh, your rules on stock exchanges as equivalent to ours, and we've changed our mind. Um, well, they can't just do that. It, just because something is voluntary doesn't mean that you get to withdraw it. If the EU is granting equivalents for equal stock exchanges, equivalent stock exchanges in other countries, then it's subject to a most favoured nation obligation to the same with the Swiss. Um, and, uh, and I think there's a, you know, a, a real legal problem with what the EU is, and it doesn't care. It said quite blatantly, we are withdrawn equivalents uh, because you are making life difficult uh, when it comes to signing up a new institutional framework. Of course, all this with an eye to the UK. Now, this is, you know, let's say, hugely problematic from a WTO point of view. So the EU plays politics when it wants, uh, which means that one can't always trust what it says, with all respect to my friends in the Commission, um, they play these games, but they dress them up legally. The UK, of course, plays its games and dresses them up politically. The Americans play their games and they don't, they just say, right? Just, right. But you know, every entity plays its games and does it in a different way. The EU is brilliant at saying it needs to be this way because of the law. Now, my um, you know, experience over the last couple of decades following EU and being involved in EU trade negotiations on the other side actually for African countries. Um, I have uh, spent a fair bit of time explaining when the EU is saying things that are right, you know, we have to do this and they're right and let's not waste time saying they're not right and when they're just making it up. And there are plenty of examples of, of when it just makes it up. Um, so I would be sceptical of just accepting everything that the EU says as gospel uh, from a legal point of view because it's not. Um, Do you think so, the Swiss are going to mount a challenge? No, the Swiss are very, very yeah. prudential. They are. They don't like bringing WTO cases, but that, but their president um, is on record as saying, first time this came up, which is uh, about a year ago, I think, um, on record as saying this is a clear MFN violation. Now, that is, those are very strong words from the Swiss. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so who knows? I mean, maybe this, uh, you know, money, Swiss stock exchanges, maybe this is what it takes. So. It, on the Swiss point, just, just before we meander away from it, I mean, it was interesting. I, I did an event last year with um, uh, Michael Ambule, who negotiated some of the Swiss uh, treaties at, um, uh, with the EU on their preferential arrangements. And it was interesting, he said, which maybe goes to the point and reflects why it's such a big deal that, that the president said this on the record. He said, we don't, or it would be prudent looking ahead to the UK's negotiation with the EU for, I remember there was a slide that said this, that the, um, not to question fundamental principles of the EU, but to deal with it in terms of interpretation. Look for the flexibility around interpretation, um, which is an interesting point to, to uh, reflect on. I just don't think that that is the UK's approach politically. It has always been to question things, um, certainly in this context now, question things from the outset rather than just try and hope that people don't realize that it's different when it comes to the interpretation or implementation of arrangements. So while we're on trade law, Lauren, I couldn't let you get away without asking you about at Article 24. Is this the UK government's no-deal escape hatch? Which part? <coughs> right, there are different parts. Um, and we've done a tour of them in this country. 
Um, I mean, it's, it's quite funny. I first started looking at this about 20 years ago for my PhD, and there were about three people that had ever looked at this uh, that I could find uh, in the world ever. Um, and now everyone in this country is an expert, so uh, it's <laughs> fantastic. Um, so uh, is it an escape hatch? No, it's the bare minimum. It is the paper on which every trade agreement uh, and every customs union is written and what it says uh, for those agreements, so that part of it, is very simple. If you want to have a free trade agreement or a customs union, you have to have no duties at all on substantially all the trade between you, and there's some variation there, but on all substantial trade between, and that's it. So it's about getting rid of customs duties between the parties. It doesn't say anything about regulatory checks, uh, compliance checks, um, security, all the rest. It's just not there. It's not what Article 24 deals with. So an escape hatch, sure, it is what you can refer to, and you must refer to, if you want to discriminate in favour, when it comes to tariffs, customs duties, in favour of particular countries. So between the UK and the EU, any free trade arrangement that doesn't involve dropping your duties for all other WTO members has to come under Article 24. It's that simple, but it only gets you to that, right? So it's great if you're uh, a, you know, a producer of pork or whatever and you don't want 40% duties going into the EU. Yes. Article 24 will save you when it comes to customs duties, but it won't save you when it comes to people at the border checking to make sure that your, your pigs are safe and, and all the rest of it. I think there's been an evolution in the arguments of people who are using it um, or putting it forward as, as a quote-unquote escape patch or something similar. I think initially, um, sort of talking about this with Lauren recently, initially it was being sort of put forward as an argument in the context of an interim solution, mm. which I think is maybe where the confusion yeah. came around from. Um, and more Recently, I, I'm, I'm sure it had to do with um, uh, Lauren's lunchtime exercise break of writing a one-page FTA. Now it's moved on from talking about the interim context to, well, we can just have a one-page or a, a basic FTA, um, and then we can move on to what, and, and sort of keep things, keep tariffs at zero while we, while we negotiate the wider trade agreement. And I think the issue, from a, at least from a business perspective, has always been from the get-go, regardless of whether it was being talked about in an interim or this sort of basic holding FTA context, so to speak, was that it only covered tariffs. Um, you know, I, I was looking through my comments from all the members sort of saying, well, what have you done to prepare and what, what, un what unanswered questions do you still have? And there are so many references in here to say uh, tariffs, yes, it'd be nice to avoid them, certainly in an agri-food context, but I'm trying to plan from the perspective of customs disruptions. And mm. that doesn't deal with that in the same sense really whatsoever. So the message, I think, from the business community on Article 24, in so much as there ever has been one, is please just remember this is not getting you a standstill transition, which is what some people sometimes conflate it with. Mm. It gets you a of what you need for that continuity. Um, and it'd be interesting to see actually whether whoever emerges as the new Prime Minister um, keeps uh, faith with what Theresa May's government uh, ha was committed to, which was there would only be one set of changes for business to deal with. Because if you're using Article 24 in the context of how it's recently being discussed, then you are getting multiple changes, probably in a, in a not um, a sort of sh uh, long period of time, effectively. Can I just um, add a point on the interim, seeing as I've uh, yep. You know, this has been an issue. Um, so the simplest way to understand what Article 24 has to do with interim agreements is that from the UK's perspective, zero. So if that word never comes up again, I think it would be a good thing. Interim agreements under Article 24 are agreements which provide for getting rid of duties, eliminating duties over time. Now every agreement that the UK is proposing with the EU and vice versa starts from a zero duty point of view. So interim simply has nothing to do with it. it 
any basic FTA that only covers duties is a fully compliant FTA that lasts forever or last till tomorrow. It's entirely up to you. But it's not interim in a WTO sense. It may be interim in another sense, because you might want to have that in place and at the same time negotiate something else, but that's got nothing to do with Article 24. <coughs> so I would rather, if, you know, be sensible if we talked about these agreements as basic, mm. in other words, they cover tariffs and they can last forever, if that's what you want, or more sophisticated, also under Article 24, the EU is an Article 24 agreement, the EEA is an Article 24 agreement, um, you know, there are hundreds of Article 24 agreements, they're not special, they're normal, they're routine, um, but uh, interim, just to you know, finish on that point, is not the issue. And of course, Ali mentioned what is not covered, checks and so on, also services of course are not covered. There's an equivalent rule in the General Agreement on Trade and Service, Article 5, hopefully everybody will be an expert on that <laughs> soon, um, uh, I look forward to that, which is essentially the Article 24 equivalent for services, but 24 doesn't deal with services in addition to not dealing with checks and regulatory matters. Fine. Article 5, you heard it here first. Um, Karen, coming back to government readiness, since the April 12th deadline, a lot of the kind of the yellow hammer, the emergency operational provisions have been stood down temporarily. It seems, at least from where we're standing, that a lot of the external comms around no deal has ramped down. How long will a new Prime Minister have until they have to hit the kind of big red button to start no deal preps and the operational readiness going again? Um, not long. Uh, so the assumption uh, is uh, that all of those arrangements that were planned for March and then April will uh, largely need to be replaced and put in place for uh, uh, for October the 31st. Those are ready to go. I'm sure we, like every other government department, knew exactly when we needed to start turning things on again. Um, uh, as few of those changes were, a uh, few of those arrangements were going to change and improve uh, and decisions needed to be made. But the difficulty, of course, has been the recess uh, and then September conference season which eats into the preparation time. So our view was uh, that we needed to start being, uh, getting pre preparations ready to go in July mm. uh, in order to be ready for October 31st. Some things could wait later than that. Um, particularly one of the most important things would have been communications for improving readiness of third parties and traders and businesses in particular. Uh, and if you're going to improve those arrangements, then ideally you want to be able to be doing more of, not just putting things on gov.uk, but events yeah. or um, yeah. advice, or ensuring that uh, organisations such as Ali's, but other trade rep organisations that, uh, that communicate to uh, businesses, not just in the UK, but in Europe. If you are going to run events, you need those events to be running in um, September, maybe in August, you need to be pressing the button on those mm. now. Mm. Um, so there isn't a lot of time. Clearly, it's uh, uh, what civil servants are doing is trying to negotiate how much they can do without waiting for uh, uh, for yeah. a new prime minister uh, to come in. But, but that's obviously going to be 
yeah. it, it's all going to have to be ready imminently for that date. There's something Karen mentioned there, which, which doesn't really under my purview, but sometimes comes up, which seems to be um, an internal government working matter, which is around how much civil servants are allowed to do without clearance, without being signed off and cleared to do at a very senior political level, um, which I think generally has sometimes made engaging with government a bit difficult at times. Um, and I think to, to bring it back to Northern Ireland, you know, the um, procedures that were um, proposals and processes that were uh, put in place, or I should say proposed, uh, I think that they were put out the same day as the No Deal UK, i.e. basically GB, Great Britain tariff schedule, was put down uh, in, under the event of No Deal. They're pretty, um, I don't know if complicated is the right word, um, but they are, they, if they are complicated to people who deal with trade policy and the practitioner side of it a lot, imagine what the average SMA who just sort of sends a van with, I don't know, baking stuff across the, the Northern Irish border, sort of to the south, to Ireland, and back and forth several times a day. So we really want that, you know, it's not, I think very often the question of no deal preparation is sort of um, uh, politicized a lot. It sort of some becomes, it seems to have become a kind of um, almost machismo behavior in terms of people trying to say, well, you know, I can show how prepared I am because that means I'm fine with no deal. And mm. we'll let the politicians hash that out. But really, from a, particularly from a Northern Irish perspective, we really want the preparation um, uh, communications and engagement to ramp up simply because it's going to be really complicated to make the processes that are supposed to underpin, um, you know, the, the, government has, uh, the government has effectively answered the exam question by saying, no, we are not going to put up any new infrastructure at the border under no deal. But the way in which they are proposing to have that work while still allowing compliance and enforcement of the controls, whether it's in a virtual or removed from the border sense, are pretty hard to understand. And so to make that actually work, and we have no idea how long they'll be in place for if there is a no deal, you know, bearing in mind that we may go to a different set of negotiations very quickly, um, we'd like that to happen sooner rather than later because it will actually... Um, you know, you, you can satisfy the exam question, but you can kill business in the process of doing it. We'd rather not have that happen. So just very quickly before I come to the floor from questions, because I'm sure there's plenty of things you'd like to get into. Ali, I've got a question for you on the, um, the money that Jeremy Hunt promised, the £6 billion that he said <coughs> would be available for businesses under a no-deal situation. What would you want that spent on? And are there things that actually government should be spending money on before we get to October 31st to try and improve readiness? You mentioned the kind of things that the Irish government have put yeah, in place. So it's it's um it's a we had proposed an idea you know uh, even before the last general election that Theresa May called saying that um, I think before they were even out in it we, we'd looked at this we'd done survey work because we didn't want to suggest anything that wasn't going to be used by by businesses and and we got a pretty good response rate you know well over half said that they would take up this kind of financial assistance to offset professional help. Um, now, there are technically different ways you can do it. We had suggested maybe um, along the lines of what used to be the business growth vouchers that help basically uh, you to redeem against the cost of professional help, mainly for SMEs, because a lot of the larger companies have those preparations and plans in place. But also, you could look at something along the lines of, even though it gets quite complicated quickly, um, you know, could you make Brexit planning a, a tax deductible for R&D purposes, for example? Because this is the kind of stuff that you're going to need, not just um, in the run-up to no deal, but thereafter, because it's, that's, that's where actually I think the money is best spent, is trying to deal with the mitigation of implementing it thereafter. Um, and so when it comes to, you know, I think a lot of the, the money that Jeremy Hunt was talking about was seen in the context of, of subsidies for farmers in the event of tariffs, and I may, I may shift over to Lauren to uh, sort of deal with any issues around, you know, what, what is... 
I think it depends is the answer. But what you know, how much is that W2 compliant versus not? Um, except for again, the, the tariffs. Apart from what you're talking to people who are trading into Ireland, um, the tariffs just aren't the biggest issue for mm. most people. Um, it really is the planning help. It is the customs disruption. Um, so it's hard to see now. You know, where would that money be best spent? Well, it depends on how bad the disruption is going to be. But certainly, we think that allowing that money to be um, channeled to help businesses adjust um, as it happens to help get that professional help because as I say through no fault of their own the, the stuff being issued by government is just too generic to be of, of really specific use to those companies that have those situational specific needs. Thank you very much. So questions from the floor. We have got Elliot, do you want to do one here and one in the corner here? We'll take a few groups questions. Um, if, if I can, like two questions. One, if, one very briefly to Karen, um, Lisa O'Carroll from The Guardian. Um, the Brexit impact paper or the uh, contingency plans for the border in Northern Ireland have never been published. What was in that paper that was so difficult um, for the public to see? And secondly, maybe for um, Laurent, um, do you think the free trade or free port zones are, are viable? Um, hello, a question for Lauren in, in particular. Um, let's suppose we get to November the 1st and the Prime Minister uh, wants to subsidise exporters facing tariffs, wants to have no tariffs on goods coming in from the EU, and the legal advice is, Prime Minister, you can't do that. This breaches WTO rules. My question is, in the real world, could they get away with it? If the Prime Minister says, you know, I'll take the risk. I don't think they'll come back. And if they do, the legal case will last forever. Could they get away with it, or would there be in the real world quick consequences? And do you want to just quickly pass it back to Yes, well, I do feel like you that um, it would be good if more people understood Article 24, since I was involved in the UK's Article 24 negotiations when it joined. I have a little familiarity, but not on that point. Are those in the panel aware of the communication that the Commission sent to all 27 other member states in December about how they should treat uh, imports from the UK in the circumstances of no deal, which was they should be treated as third country, both for tariffs and for tax purposes, indirect tax purposes, meaning VAT. Uh, and are you really suggesting that the new president of the commission on the first day she takes office is going to reverse that, uh, even if the British government is refusing to pay the divorce payment. Uh, and secondly, could you, because none of you have commented on this, say a little bit about the implications for British exporters exporting, let us say, for the sake of uh, use, uh, Japan uh, on the second or first of November? What can they expect? Uh, we've already heard what the Japanese foreign minister said. Uh, they can expect there to be no UK-Japan deal. Okay, so a few questions there. Lawrence, should we start with you? Sure. Um, so first of all, on the free trade zones. Um, this is a creative idea. There are free trade zones. Um, not only are there many in developing countries, um, but for instance, there's one in Geneva, right? So they do exist. Um, they need to be designed fairly carefully in order to survive WTO rules. It is possible 
um, but they do raise questions and they frequently stray into the area of uh, illegality, particularly mm. when it comes to subsidies. Because essentially what you're doing is you're using a geographical entity to uh, subsidise production. So that needs to be treated carefully. <coughs> I can't give you a precise answer on how that works right now because it's complicated. So I wouldn't rule it out. I think the main problem is it's extremely complicated and you need to wall off your free trade zone from a non-free trade part of your territory. And so essentially what you're doing is pushing the border somewhere else. Now, if you're worried about a border being in a particular location, that might help you. But if you're worried about there being a border at all, uh, maybe not. Um, and the other thing is it's largely about customs declarations and these are, uh, I mean, I'm not the expert here, but my understanding is that 99% of them are electronically filed anyway and so what we're really talking about is not free trade zones but rather um, free regulation zones and that's an entirely different thing. So it might be an answer to a problem that's actually um, not really there. On um, getting away with it under WTO law, I mean, in the real world, um, the, the way enforcement in the WTO works is that there is a dispute, a claim, and it takes usually between two to four years, sometimes even longer, uh, for that to result in a, a, a report which is then adopted by the WTO members in a particular configuration. <coughs> and at that point it becomes legally binding, incumbent on the uh, uh, the, the, say the, um, the, the member that's done the wrong thing to fix up what it's done. But there are no damages, so it's not like you go to court in a domestic legal system and you have to pay compensation for the harm that you have caused. In fact, it's not even like in other forms of international law where you have to pay compensation for the harm that you've caused. So there is no compensation. Your only obligation is to change your regime from the, in fact, you even have time to implement, like usually about a year and a half. So in the real world, you could do something illegal and you've got about four to five years or maybe even a bit more in order um, to uh, you know, sit tight and then wait and then implement if you want. So yes, that's the real world. But that's not the only part of the real world that's important. The UK has got a reputation to maintain and doing, um, yeah. uh, uh, conducting itself in a blatantly illegal manner is just not something that the UK does. Most countries don't do that. They tend to prefer to find um, excuses and exceptions and, and so on, uh, which can give them at least, you know, prima facie legal cover for what they're doing. And I think what's important when it comes to, so with subsidies and so on, I mean, you know, just there are ways of designing subsidies regimes which would be helpful, others which are clearly illegal. You can't just, you know, give subsidies to a particular industry in order to pay tariffs. I mean, that just doesn't work, right? That's illegal. But there are other things you could do. Um, so that's what I would say uh, to that. In terms of um, what uh, needs to be done, which is the next question, um, you know, what are the problems being faced? The, the EU uh, Commission communication that came out last year, yes, I'm uh, aware of that. The UK needs to be treated as a third country. I would break that down into two parts. When it comes to tariffs, sure, as I was saying before, it's MFN. There's no way of getting away with um, uh, uh, you know, preferential trade there's just no real way of doing that and I don't think that's really expected. But again, that's only part of the problem. The other aspect of the communication is treating UK products as third country products from, from a regulatory point of view. And as I said up front, that's not really an MFN issue, at least it's not only an MFN issue, that's a risk assessment issue. And to pretend that a UK um, you know, widget that happens to uh, have a safety a toy, let's say, if the UK makes toys, I don't know. Let's assume it does. It's a must. I'm sure there's a toy manufacturer out there, um, which would need to be checked for compliance with uh, EU rules. To, to think that 
if nothing else changes in the, e, in the UK's internal system, um, that all of a sudden it becomes as dangerous as a toy from another country where there are no arrangements, I think is, uh, is simply implausible. And so those aspects of the EU's communication, uh, I think, are uh, essentially um, wrong from a legal point of view under WTO law. So I'd say a bit of yes and a, um, and a bit of so no. In the, yeah. Sorry, if I interrupt Karen, yeah. it'd be interesting to get your perspective on what you heard from your conversations with member states. So those that came out from the Commission, yeah. what were member states saying they were going to do? What were the French saying was going to happen in Calais? And then obviously there's Lisa's question on, on Northern Ireland. Um, yeah, so uh, what was very clear and extremely consistent was in all of our conversations with member states that they would be treating the UK as a third country with everything that that uh, entailed, which meant that every uh, regime, the customs regime, the product regime, the quality uh, uh, of goods, the controls and checks on uh, agri-foods and goods, which was one of the biggest areas, would all need, all of the EU countries would absolutely need to comply with that. Uh, what was extremely clear from individual conversations with member states is that they felt that requirement very strongly and therefore were putting in arrangements to make sure that they could carry out those requirements. Uh, some countries were much better prepared than others. So, for example, uh, in Netherlands and Rotterdam, they already, their ports were used to dealing with uh, goods from the rest of the world, so they had those arrangements and infrastructure and systems in place. Um, at the Channel, uh, like, uh, like the UK, the French side of the Channel did not have those arrangements in place because we've you know, had the last... Uh, uh, several decades working without those arrangements um, but they have since put them in place and they have every uh, uh, intent to operate all of those requirements uh, for all goods entering the, uh, U uh, entering the EU from the UK. That means uh, it's good that they are ready, they've got systems in place and infrastructure in place. Unfortunately in all of those locations if uh, the HGVs carrying those goods can't demonstrate that they've complied with customs declarations correctly, are, uh, correctly um, and with declaring all of the goods in the way that is necessary, they will be stopped and held until they can comply. So that is the cause of the issue. Um, what is uh, very unclear is how uh, Ireland would deal with the land border. I think we are clear that Ireland has arrangements in place at Dublin for goods from Holyhead, um, but it is not at all clear what arrangements it would put in place. And therein lies part of the problem in Northern Ireland, because without knowing what the arrangements are on the other side of the border, then uh, 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 traders are very but it's extremely difficult for them to prepare. Um, uh, there will be tariff barriers as well as regulatory controls and checks barriers, but they don't know how they can prepare for those. And that's very difficult. We've been trying to guide traders and businesses uh, on what their preparations will be, uh, need to be for both the UK and for Europe. But what we can't do is uh, easily prepare them from the Irish side. 
of the border. Um, uh, I can't really comment on what was in a paper that hasn't been published. <laughs> um, uh, uh, that hasn't, anyway, uh, uh, clearly the... Could you talk about the decisions about why it wasn't published? Uh, I'm, I'm not even sure I, I, I am able to do that. Um, so, um, you know, many, many government documents don't get, don't get published. There, there was uh, a publication which more broadly uh, set out the, uh, uh, the, the implications of no deal and there was a Northern Ireland uh, section in that, in that paper. Um, the main concerns as far as the border is concerned, the land border is concerned that, that we were uh, uh, worrying about with, with Northern Ireland uh, colleagues is um, the large number of small businesses that trade across the land border. Um, because we, we uh, uh, relatively late in the day, started to talk to Northern Ireland businesses about arrangements and preparations for those. The policy for the UK government policy, the unilateral policy that it was going to apply to trade in Northern Ireland across the land border uh, was somewhat different to uh, the rest of the UK um, and uh, therefore the traders had uh, le much less time to be prepared but could only be prepared for uh, arrangements on the UK side of the border and not in the yeah. Irish side of the border, that made it almost impossible for many of those traders to prepare. But even so, what they could recognise was that <coughs> it would be extremely difficult for goods moving from Northern Ireland into Ireland uh, because of the tariff barriers, which would, which would potentially make uh, many businesses uneconomic to trade in that direction. Um, in the other direction, because the UK was not applying customs controls and was minimising the controls and checks on uh, the border, uh, partly because we could take a risk decision as the UK on those arrangements, but most importantly because uh, 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 it was imperative to avoid crystallising a hard border. Um, therefore, trade would be able to come from Ireland into Northern Ireland, but there would be more barriers to trade moving from Northern yeah. Ireland to Ireland. And therein lies many of the difficulties, I think, for, uh, for trade across the border. And that would have economic consequences. Yeah, it's what's called, I think a lot of people refer to it, particularly in the agri-food community, is the double whammy, effectively, that you suddenly um, have uh, face uh, big barriers going into Ireland. Um, so effectively, I come back to my point, you've satisfied the exam question, there's no physical infrastructure from the UK's end, but you've made it viably uneconomic, or economically unviable, rather, for a lot of businesses, um, just on the new controls uh, going south alone. Um, and then just, so, so uh, and added to that, you also have the issue, and there are apparently from discussions that people who uh, trade between Northern Ireland and GB, um, Scotland and England, uh, and Wales as well, saying effectively, well, there's actually, people aren't very happy in certain parts of industry about products coming into um, GB via, you know, basically no border, no tariffs um, uh, into into the north of I Northern Ireland, um, and then basically sort of getting, you know, they get um, a bite of the cherry that other people don't. So there's people that are quite unhappy about that. It's basically, a, you know, competitive wise, you are um, uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Just really quickly, 
um, I mean, on the free ports, I've been watching the Treasury answer written questions, and they've been saying, you know, it is, I know there are issues about to what extent being in the single market, state aid, and the customs union really limit the ability to create new free zones. Um, Treasury keeps saying that they are perfectly entitled to do so, and they're evaluating their own implications of the feasibility. But there is also the issue about, in, insofar as Northern Ireland is concerned, um, that sort of not just moving the border, but creating new barriers that people keep talking about that they don't want internally um, uh, east-west. And then just briefly on Japan, I mean, it's, it's you know, last I've seen, DIT has said it's not being rolled over. This is one of the two areas that are not being rolled over, along with the Turkish arrangements, which are actually much more problematic, I would say, than Japan, because people do use those customs union arrangements. Um, it's hard to say how many companies, because the agreement came into force in February, and some of the tariff um, uh, cuts are phased, are actually using that. So I think it will be predominantly more a case of losing competitive advantage to European uh, producers and businesses, um, rather than any hard, hard changes in the way that you get from the total um, uh, uh, loss of the Turkish preferential arrangements that we currently have. Can I add a point on the FTAs? Um, it's not only the UK's rolled over FTAs that could impact on UK manufacturers, but also EU FTAs that continue but change in their application mm. because at the moment UK input qualifies as EU for an EU product. So imagine a car that's made in Germany using UK input. In a no deal scenario, those inputs wouldn't qualify anymore and the, the, uh, the EU car would then have to use EU sourced inputs in order to remain as a qualifying uh, product under an FTA. And the Commission, European Commission, is fully aware of this and has, and has in fact said this in one of its stakeholder notices. Um, we recommend uh, that UK manufacturers consider switching the input supply to EU manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And that happens you know, as a default uh, if the UK and the EU uh, don't come to some sort of agreement. Just really, really, really briefly, yep. I, I would be two seconds. Um, just to the point about the implications of what basically ignoring some RWTO and FN obligations have, you know, there was a very recently departed trade minister who made a, um, uh, uh, stood up in the House of Commons a few months ago and said to Theresa May that basically, um, in order to keep the Irish border open, that the UK should just uh, ignore the MFN rule and just continue to give preference to, to EU imports and deal with the consequences afterwards. Um, which, when I draw, picked off off the floor after seeing that, you know, you talk about that with some of the trading partners and the trade ministries for whom that we are trying to do trade deals with after, after Brexit, they were not impressed. That's all I'm going to say. Next batch of questions. We've got one here and there. Hi, it's uh, Chris Morris, BBC. Um, I just wanted to for all three of you, um, what you thought of some of the suggestions put forward by the Alternative Arrangements Commission last week, and particularly, Karen, from within government, what the notion of alternative arrangements could look like, given that for any technological solution to work in the long term, you'd need, what, 30 or so government agencies at borders to suddenly seamlessly work together on one system? And just in front. Thank you. Um, Andy Bell, 5 News, just a very basic question. I mean, what would you expect to be the most concrete example, most obvious example of disruption on November the 1st if there was no deal? Something that, if I can put it this way, the public would really be aware of. Or put it another way, where should we send our cameras on November the 1st? <laughs> <laughs> um, just one more there. Thank you. Uh, Robert Morland, I'm a, a former member of the European Parliament. I just wondered whether... The fact that Britain will uh, leave, but will be largely operating single market legislation, will be a great help in actually not having too much regulation at the borders, and particularly in the transport area, 
carriage of goods where we have loads of regulations, which actually Britain was the leader on, and the free airspace, whether we need to worry too much there. But on the other hand, when it comes to the subsidies, and particularly if we're going to get the large amounts thrown at agriculture, um, are we not going to get a reaction on the other side, and particularly difficult for farmers, as the tariff, I believe, for a number of the key products uh, going into the EU is very high? That's great. So we will take those questions. If we go through these quite quickly, we yeah. should have time for another batch. So I'll start with you, Ali. Yeah, I'm just going to pick up. I mean, I have to declare an interest that I'm on the government's technical panel that's just been put together to advise an alternative arrangement. So I, I feel like I'm a little bit hamstrung in, in, in talking too much about it. Um, I haven't read the entirety of the report. I think the thing that comes <coughs> up in my skimming of it is the time constraint issue. Um, is effectively, is this being uh, asked to be put in place in place of the backstop? Like, what is it being used for? And what are the time constraints? Because you listen to the uh, Director General of HMRC and he constantly says, we can only you know work once we have that point of clarity and what the actual arrangements are. Um, uh, until that point, you are you know basically effectively throwing good money after bad because you don't know what you're putting in place. So um, I think a lot can be done, but the big question is around time constraints, effectively. Um, uh, and then secondly, just really briefly, I mean, it's interesting you asked the question. I think it was more towards Karen about where should the cameras go. But I think coming back to Karen's point, the one point is about if you really wanted to, you know, what happens when the French officials are checking goods and the paperwork isn't compliant because people are de dealing with stuff for the first time. Um, that's where the holdups, as Karen was talking about, I see coming in. It'd be interesting to see if the UK takes a more facilitative approach on the inbound stuff. And then also, I mean, I come back to the point that I made about um, EU nationals coming into the UK after after Brexit day. Um, how much confusion is going to be? Is it going to be easy on day one and then day two onwards? Um, is there going to be a lot of confusion around uh, what kind of documentation you need to come in and to work. Karen, do you want to go uh, next? Yeah, on, on the um, uh, wh where are you most likely to see issues? Yes, I mean, Dover, Calais. Uh, Calais is where uh, the trucks are most likely to be stopped. Uh, Dover, uh, we are taking a more facilitative approach on our side of the border, but if uh, 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 trucks get stopped at Calais, then after a while the docks will get clogged up and that will cause problems in both directions, uh, which, we will, which we will see in uh, Dover. Uh, uh, th th that's not unique. Um, uh, same issues might apply in Folkestone with Eurotunnel as well. Um, uh, ju just to add on alternative arrangements, a lot is, uh, uh, again, not, not much more to say, and I, I completely agree with what Ali has said. Uh, a lot is talked about technology at the border and technology solutions. Um, I think alternative arrangements is, is, is intended to try to find technology solutions. Um, uh, uh, technology alone is not going to solve that uh, border problem. It needs to be around uh, uh, other arrangements as well. Um, it has to be uh, done in a way that is going to work on both directions, both sides of the border, which is clearly extremely difficult to try and achieve when uh, we're, we're not able to uh, discuss these things uh, with Irish colleagues. Um, and in any case, the technology is not in place uh, anytime anytime soon, uh, the sorts of arrangements will be necessary. But all of those um, uh, are all fine, but actually what you would need to do is ensure that industry, the traders, the road hauliers, and the end-to-end -end supply chains were 
actually geared up for this as well, that is more likely to take longer potentially than, uh, uh, than putting technology arrangements in as well. Yeah, quickly, so like Ali, I'm in the government's uh, alternative arrangements group, so I can't speak uh, really about the alternative alternative <laughs> arrangements group, or, uh, and I, I'd rather not. Uh, right now, obviously, I'd be looking at this mainly from a legal point of view, and there are various you know, legal points in there that I you know, would be happy to talk about, but maybe not now. Uh, uh, on the um, EU uh, regulations continuing. Yes, well this is essentially what I was saying before, which is it does make a difference if uh, the UK continues to mirror EU rules. Now, obviously the more the UK moves away from that, the more this no longer applies, but if the UK continues to mirror and update EU rules, then it's essentially in the same position as Switzerland, right? It's de facto in the internal market, and the question then is what will the EU do about this, um, and what must it do about this, and these are two uh, different things. One separate point is the EU says, well, it's not just those rules, it's that we can't enforce the rules against you because you're outside of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice and you don't pay as much respect to the European Commission as you used to. Um, to which I would say, yes, that's a valid um, point to make, but if you look at what goes on, uh, you know, with Switzerland uh, or with, for instance, the three EFTA countries under the European um, uh, Economic Area, uh, enforcement there takes effectively a bilateral cooperation form um, and I think that the UK could well offer something up which is equivalent to what happens there. Um, uh, maybe uh, not so much the Swiss because the EU is very unhappy about the Swiss as, uh, as we were talking about before, but certainly the EFTA 3 uh, would put the EU on the back foot to explain um, why what is good enough from an overall enforcement structure for Norway is not good enough for the UK and I think that question has neither been asked um, nor, uh, or nor, of course, answered. There are things that the UK um, might do that would change the picture, like subsidies and so on, and obviously that is different because that would um, raise legal questions, uh, even under WTO law, like subsidies, for instance, and the EU would be entitled to respond in kind. I mean, this debate about, by the way, you know, uh, what is legal, what challenge might you be able to bring against the EU, etc. It's really interesting for the, even including people like myself who are interested in the trade policy and trade law aspect, and for the politicians effectively to say, well, who's more at fault for the disruption for no deal? It does nothing for business who has to deal with what the next day arrangements are. So I just, it sounds an obvious point to make, but that gets lost a lot in the noise about all right, this. Can we distinguish also between, and I think we are, but between the disruption aspects of no deal, which are, you know, Brexit day, so 1st of November, and the situation in a little while after that. Mm. And I think it's important to keep the, these positions separate. Right? It could be that you know, the disruption is of course very damaging and maybe even be fatal to certain businesses. But that <coughs> is not the same question as what happens later on. So smoothing over the disruption, it goes in both directions. It may not solve other problems in three months or a year's time, um, but it may. Right? It may deal with those, uh, it may get you to um, that next patch, which may not be quite as difficult um, as the disruptions. No, but it still means multiple changes to contend with. That's the, that's the issue, I think, is sometimes even if it changes for the better and it simplifies what the disruption was liable to be on day one, it still means you're constantly having to make the adjustment to reflect what changes are taken account into sure. thereafter. But I, I still think there's a difference between learning how to fill in a, f a new form mm. and what is on that form. Mm. So it's nine o'clock. Uh, there are still more hands up, so I'll take a few more questions, but if you need to scoot out, please do scoot out. So, Elliot, we'll go for the back. Cause 
Hi there. Uh, sorry, my name is Neil. I work for Tech UK. It's obviously a very service-heavy industry, and this discussion is mostly focused on goods. So I was wondering if you could all briefly comment on government's attention split between services and goods, and how, what impact that might have in a cliff-edge, no-deal situation in terms of government stakeholder engagement and guiding business through that. And the gentleman just next to you for the last question. Sorry to those who haven't. It's uh, Chris Giles from the Financial Times. A question, very quick question for Karen. The government has said it will prioritise flow of goods over revenues. What revenue are you most scared about losing? Fine. Yeah, so Ali, if you start with services. I'll just pick up services. Um, I mean, so, so the one thing I did mention in respect of services was the, the one thing that seems to unite all services sectors because they have different issues because it's not a homogenous really single market um, is around movement of people. That seems to be the one thing that unites everything um, uh, in terms of concern about understanding what those arrangements will be. And where it makes it actually particularly more difficult, um, it, it's really hard to generalize about the services sector, but I'll make an attempt, um, is that there's a lot of people, there's much more of a wait and see approach to services because I think understanding what the that's going to mean in practical terms from a third country, there's no, you know, we know that if you're a UK-based supplier uh, supplying into the single market or the EU that you're going to be traded the same because uh, as any other third country effectively because there's a, a uniform single market in goods, whereas when it comes to the services sector, it depends on each individual's uh, member state's um, uh, application of the rules to a certain extent, so there's more of a wait-and-see approach. Uh, but probably to the point that you probably want to raise is around data, and there's, you know, we, we did an event on data um, uh, trying to prepare for no-deal Brexit on data uh, last year, and I have I have to say that the lawyers on the panel were just like, there's not a huge much you can do. Some people are setting up data centers in Europe to help be able to allow them to process European users' data in Europe, but that obviously doesn't get you away from the problem of transferring the data out of the UK, out of Europe to the EU, to the UK, if you're moving around payroll information, etc. So it sometimes does feel like a little bit of a ticking time bomb around whether people understand what, uh, if we don't have that adequacy, which I think is the assumption that you wouldn't have under no deal, at least immediately, what the um, uh, implications are going to be. Um, yeah, I, I, so forgive me uh, on the uh, split between goods and services. I, I, <laughs> my job on the border was all about goods, uh, so that, that's where I... Can I say you're lucky? No. Uh, <laughs> indeed, indeed, probably, uh, probably lucky, at least it was straightforward. Um, uh, so that's where I spent most of my, my time. Um, in, in terms of uh, uh, revenues, obviously the revenues that would be affected uh, by prioritising flow would be the customs duties uh, uh, associated with this. Um, it's much more important to preserve the flow of goods, not only because of uh, the fact that we use those goods, we want those goods, um, uh, we want our foods and our medicines and our um, goods and gifts for Christmas or, or whatever it is, we need those goods to keep the, the country running and of course the economic benefit of both importing and exporting. Um, and uh, I, I'm sure that you've heard the Chancellor's view on that. I think he's better placed to reflect on uh, the loss of uh, revenue than I am, but clearly it's the economic impact associated with a uh, flow of goods on uh, um, businesses that is uh, possibly greater than the direct loss of income associated I mean, it, it with it. It goes safety, security, and then yeah. revenue, uh, sorry, and then flow, and then revenue. So there is a first in there. Yeah, <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, uh, uh, our view was that uh, uh, 
per se the, the, the safety and security was not necessarily directly impacted as a result of uh, uh, a Brexit no deal. Um, uh, clearly there are some impacts associated with that, but as far as the, the uh, goods coming through, um, safety and security absolutely un absolutely fundamentally important to maintain that, but the, the two other objectives that you would uh, play tunes on would be flow versus uh, revenue and compliance. Yeah. Because you think, sorry, it's the last thing I will say, you think about the day one, I mean, Lauren was talking about what happens after day one. Um, and maybe, you know, in terms of thinking ahead, everyone is sort of remembers the horse meat scandal and do we think it's going to happen again tomorrow? No, not necessarily. But all it takes is one outbreak of sorts to lead that approach to either change in terms of orientation, but also from the EU's perspective to really um, uh, take enforcement and compliance seriously. So it's, it's, you know, when we talk about day one plus X, you then start to think about what else might come into the system. So nothing is always, you know, status quo when we're talking about from a planning perspective. Ron, is there anything you wanted to add? Huh. Very quickly on the services point, um, obviously uh, a no deal will affect services dramatically um, and uh, in some cases uh, probably intentionally, uh, for instance financial services, I think it's no great secret that the EU is keen to attract financial services business uh, from the UK. Um, but again, um, WTO law can be a friend to the UK taking into account that enforcement takes a long time uh, and so on. And uh, once again, there are rules which require the EU not to discriminate between the UK and other countries to which it has, for instance, granted equivalence, which is what an adequacy determination is on data. So if the EU has said, well, Japan is safe on data and the UK is equally safe to Japan, there's no real reason why the UK should be treated differently. And I think those equivalency um, uh, and equality of treatment um, arguments really need to be taken seriously by the UK and by businesses um, knocking uh, at the door of UK government. So that's all we have time for. I'm very sorry for those of you who didn't have a chance to get your questions answered, but can you join me in giving a round of applause to our panel?